0: In addition to being an Anglican priest, Jonathan Swift had a special gift for satire. Satire, he wrote, is a sort of glass wherein beholders do generally discover everybody's face but their own, which is the chief reason for that kind of reception which it meets in the world, and that so very few are offended by it. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowich. Writing amid the scientific and technological advancements of the early 1700s, Swift was less than convinced that the progress being made was actually progress. In Gulliver's travels, he included a voyage to the flying island of Laputa, where science and technology come under his satirical gaze. Dr. Tiffany Schubert gave this introduction to Gulliver's adventure on Laputa.
1: So, I wanted to start by talking about clothes. As we saw at the beginning of the week, Aristotle, formal and dry most of the time, unbends sufficiently to mock Hippodamus for wearing cheap and warm clothing, not only in winter, but also in summer weather. Hippodamus' cheap clothes are in stark contrast to the finely wrought garments described in Exodus, or the ornate armor of Achilles. Hippodamus' clothes are also worn without attention to the seasons. He does not adjust his techne to nature, but rather imposes that techne over the natural world, its tyrannical fashion. Upon his arrival on Laputa, Gulliver almost immediately notices the people's clothing. Uh, this is page 200 to 201 in our reading. He tells us, their outward garments were adorned with the figures of suns, moons, and stars, interwoven with those of fiddles, flutes, harps, trumpets, guitars, harpsichords, and many other instruments of music unknown to us in Europe. There is rich ornamentation on their clothes, like the clothing that we see in Exodus. I wonder actually if this is something of an allusion to the robe of Lady Philosophy in Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, if any of you have read that text. Their lady philosophy's robe has the Greek letters pi and theta on it, uh, which stand for practical and theoretical philosophy. And there's actually know, a series of steps from pi to theta, from the practical to the theoretical, to the speculative. But the robes of the Laputins uh, have no steps. Right? There is no connection or union between the practical and the theoretical, all we have are the interweaving of the instruments with the heavenly bodies. So I think that what we see here in the Laputins is an utter disregard for the practical. Right? And in fact, we actually learn later that they play, um, they play music for three hours it's quite dreadful to listen to. And Gulliver is completely right. confused and bewildered of a fuddle by it. And they explain to him, oh, well, right, we're just playing along with the music of the spheres, which is not music that human beings can actually hear. Right. Uh, so it's music that is not at all tailored to actual human nature, actual human experience. And I think, again, this is what we're seeing on the ropes and on their clothing. So like with Hippodamus, once again, we see clothing as a symbol for a separation from nature. And this time it's a separation from from human nature, from the practical. Mm -hmm. Clothing, we see clothing as a, a symbol of a separation from nature. Gulliver, stranded at sea for days, when he arrives in Laputa, is in need of fresh clothes. So the king sends his tailor to him. And this is on page 204, where he describes how the tailor First, took my altitude by a quadrant, and then, with a ruler and compasses, described the dimension and outlines of my whole body, all of which he entered upon paper, and in six days brought my clothes very ill made and quite out of shape by a mistake he made in the calculation. <laughs> but my comfort was that I observed his accidents very frequent and little regarded. Okay. The tailor admittedly makes a mistake in his calculations. He's also using the completely wrong tools to measure the human body. He uses geometrical tools tools associated with squares and circles to measure the human form, which is neither a square or a circle, though it does have aspects of both. Once again, this is techne severed from human nature. Here it's just like the practical concrete, straightforward shape of the human body. It's this disembodied fashion. So clothes themselves, of course, are a form of techne. They are both ornamental and protective. It's maybe two of the elements that keep coming up in our discussions of, of techne, things that are beautiful, things that protect us uh, from our deep and profound vulnerabilities. But in Gulliver's Travels, I think clothes are also an image just of techne itself and of techne's power to dissociate us from our own nature. Maybe be perhaps an image of how badly techné can be when it comes from a mind that is utterly disembodied, disattached, disassociated from the embodied world itself. And this disassociative power, I think is the main target of Swift's satire in Gulliver's Travels. Swift is not a Luddite. He's not opposed to technology. He's not opposed to science. In fact, he, he was friends uh, with some natural philosophers, apparently but he was deeply concerned about the dangers of abstract speculation. The Laputins are so introspective that they need flappers to hear and speak and see something actually I'm kind of deeply sympathetic to. As as an academic, I I think we do have this tendency to sort of withdraw into our own minds and forget to actually use our senses. So there are some days where I think, you know, maybe a flapper would be kind of nice. Actually, I think that's what children do. Yeah, that's what children say, yeah. Mm -hmm. But children are very, very effective. Yes. All right. So our, our elemental relationship with this world, our sensory engagement with it, right, which is the beginning of knowledge for the whole philosophical tradition that unites Aristotle and Thomas, is here broken by abstract speculation. Okay? So if, if knowledge begins in the senses, and the Laputins have no sensory experience of the world, what kind of knowledge is it that they actually have? So I think right, to use the language of Genesis, Swift fears that science at least the abstract science of the Laputins forgets that man is dust. And I think Swift also realizes that technology can actually enable our alienation from our own dustiness. So platonically inclined Laputans despise practical geometry. Gulliver notices, quote, the contempt they bear to practical geometry, which they despise as vulgar and mechanic. And their refined ideas, when, even, when transmitted to their artisans, are quote, too refined for the intellects of their workmen. That actually makes me think of the separation of the head and the hands that we saw in Metropolis. The hands can't understand what the head intends. And really, certainly in Gulliver's Travels, I think the head's vision is far too sidereal for the dusty nature of man in the first place. Now, Swift was also concerned about the relationship between science, technology, and politics, which Dr. Papadopoulos talked to us about on the very first day. The scientists of Swift's day mocked the scholastic philosophical tradition for its confidence in man's ability to know the essences of things. But those same scientists were dogmatic in their turn, claiming certainty for science, especially science based on mathematics and they sought that same certainty in other disciplines, including politics. Thinkers like Hobbes, enamored with the certainties of geometry, sought for that same certainty in politics. Uh, Hobbes was actually known in his own time as a mathematician and a scientist who wrote on geometry and optics. He was very impressed with the scientific approach. Uh, He was especially influenced by Galileo apparently, and he wanted to apply that approach to politics. The Laputans, I'm sure you noticed, are strangely addicted to politics. This is on page 206 of the reading. This is where Gulliver tells us, quote, but what I chiefly admired and thought altogether unaccountable was the strong disposition I observed in them towards news and politics, perpetually inquiring into public affairs, giving their judgments in matters of state and passionately disputing every inch of a party opinion. I have indeed observed the same disposition amongst most of the mathematicians I have known in Europe. (laughs) Although I could never discover the least analogy between the two sciences, unless those people suppose that the smallest circle has as many degrees as the largest, therefore the regulation and management of the world require no more abilities than the handling and turning of the globe." So Swift is satirizing scientists who are obsessed with and confident in their judgments of politics. I'm sure we could think of figures from our own time who confidently weighed into politics thinking that the management of the world requires no more ability than the handling and turning of the globe. Now I don't think the problem for Swift is that any particular scientist finds politics interesting, but rather it's a problem of category confusion. Aristotle tells us that different arts admit of different precision and politics Which, if it is that architectonic, techne, is certainly not mathematical. It is not geometrical. It cannot admit of geometrical certainty, but rather is dependent on prudence, which involves messy, dusty particulars. The Laputins, Gulliver tells us, lack imagination, fancy, invention. Uh, here, I'm gonna quote from a Swift scholar by the name of Douglas Patey, that he points out that for Swift, those faculties, imagination, fancy, and invention, are not primarily related to poetry. But in fact, he says, quote, "'Lacking these, the Laputins lack the faculties that in Renaissance divisions of knowledge guide all the arts of prudence, including especially the chief of such arts, politics.'" So because they exclude faculties essential for prudence and politics, the Laputins cannot wisely deliberate on the kind of techne to use. Again, they cannot, to borrow Dr. Papadopoulos' term, become technological conservatives because they have no proper understanding of human nature. They are technological radicals, much in the way that Bacon is a technological radical. So to reiterate again, I do not think that Swift is opposed to science or opposed to technology. He does not think that we should have no clothes. There is no returning to Edenic nakedness for Swift, but he does want those clothes to fit well, To be created with reference to the human form, to treat us as embodied souls. And he wants a politics that is practiced by those who have understanding of the human person. If politics is simplistically mathematical, then it can't function as the architectonic art. After all, geometry does not exhaust human nature. The politician must understand human nature in order to properly judge technology. Just a brief comment on the whole of Gulliver's Travels, which was published in uh, 1726. Uh, You'll see here on the board, I've thrown up a timeline of some important scientific uh, events around the time of of Swift's life. I'm not not going to go through all of them, but I think it is really helpful just to sort of situate him in his historical time period and really to realize how very, very new and recent some of these things are when Swift Swift is writing, right? Barely over a hundred years after Galileo has discovered moons uh, orbiting Jupiter. So no. very, very new at the cusp of the kind of science of the scientific revolution. Okay. So the full title of Gulliver's Travels is Gulliver's Travels, or Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World in Four Parts, by Lemuel Gulliver, first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships. Okay. Really rolls off the tongue there. Okay. It's that 18th century fondness for very, very, very long titles. Okay. But what I just wanted to draw your attention to was the travel part of that. Travels into several remote nations of the world. Travel narratives were wildly popular in the 18th century when Swift is writing. He's probably also making fun of those travel narratives as he is making fun of everything uh, in in Gulliver's Travels. But the whole structure of the travel narrative is made possible because of technology, because of ships, because of sales, because of compasses, uh, which is one of the inventions that Bacon mentions as sort of being these kind of three definitive inventions. He says, uh, it's gunpowder, compasses, and, and the telescopes, right? Yeah, and then telescopes, right. So this technology is enabling this new kind of like flourishing and burgeoning of human activity of traveling to remote lands undiscovered undiscovered islands so we're not just kind of burrowing down into caves to discover the secrets of nature climbing up into high towers to discover the secrets of nature but now we're spreading out across the world to find new atlantises traveling into remote nations of the world and there are several times throughout Gulliver's Travels where we hear about Gulliver's hunger for new things, right? His hunger to see, his hunger for the for the remoteness, his hunger for adventure, which is not uh, an unqualified good in Gulliver's Travels. It might be something acquisitive, maybe even tyrannical, right? About the impulse uh, right? to to quest, to adventure. He keeps. Being a really bad Odysseus, sorry, and kind of coming back to his wife for a little bit. Like you, you may have noticed, the first in the first right, bit of our reading, I think he's home for ten days and then heads right out again. Okay. Right. So. He hates dinner time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and right at the end of the novel, he ends in bitterness and hatred towards um, all mankind, and actually really can't bear to be in human society anymore. So there's kind of a dark, a dark ending there. Okay. <laughs> But Swift is living it after Columbus has discovered the new world, after the beginning of the project of colonization. And uh, Dr. Giesing spoke to us a little bit about this with Bacon and the new Atlantis. So I think the whole narrative of this book reflects the technological advances that allowed for long journeys into uncharted territories. Gulliver's Travels is divided into, as the title tells us, four parts. In part one, Gulliver travels to Lilliput, which is the land of the tiny people um, they're the ones who fight over which side of the egg to crack. In part two, he travels to Brobdenag, this is the land of the giants. Uh, and our selection is from part three. And then part four is his journey to the land of the are so the, the talking horses. Parts one, two, and four are the most widely read. Parts three, less so. Uh, but this is the part that is most directed towards science and towards technology. So, first, I actually just want to start by looking at Gulliver's use of technology himself because after all, he uses technology. Uh, After the pirates, which is such a great moment, uh, pirates cast him out to sea, Gulliver must use technology to save himself. Obviously his boat is, well, a boat. It is a work of techne. Remember, Sophocles' ode to man marvels at man's power over the sea. And Prometheus gives to man, quote, carriages that wander on the sea. Man cannot walk on water, but technology allows him to overcome this natural limitation. Specific nautical tools then enable man to move on the sea. Gulliver speaks of using my sail and sometimes my paddles. So he uses technology to enhance his movement and he shifts back and forth, uh, presumably right, according to what is most effective given the particular circumstance that he finds himself in, given his particular needs, he uses technology In many ways, right to serve himself.
0: Once again, I think of the words of Pope Benedict XVI in Caritas in Veritate: Entranced by an exclusive reliance on technology, reason without faith is doomed to flounder in an illusion of its own omnipotence. And the same thing is obvious in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the subject of our next podcast about the ancient and modern challenges of technology. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.